All right, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God. Um, metaphors. Metaphors. Many of you know that I, in a previous life, was an English teacher, so you're about to get a lesson in metaphors. I know you're excited about that. Shakespeare wrote in As You Like It, All the world is a stage, and all men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Metaphor, life as theatrical performance. And it seems to me you've lived your life like a candle in the wind. (laughs) Marilyn Monroe as candle. And in the whitest voice I can muster, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, oh, oh, shake it, shake it like a Polaroid picture. Dance move as a Polaroid picture. For those of you who don't know what a Polaroid picture is, ask your friends over 30. In your seventh grade textbook, it said that a metaphor is a comparison of opposite things using a to-be verb like or is, I mean is or or uh, or was or you know some type of to-be verb, and you weren't supposed to use the word like or as in it because then that would be a simile, and that's about as much as you explored the idea of metaphor. That was just about it. You made knew a metaphor because it didn't have like or as with it. Well. That's kind of a lame, though helpful, uh, definition of metaphors because, but metaphors are actually larger than that. In my personal uh, belief, uh, which matters a whole lot in this conversation because I'm doing the sermon, uh, similes are actually a subset of metaphors. Metaphors are larger than that. It is the comparison of two things. You can use like or as. You can still call it a metaphor. If you want to get technical, that's fine. But people have been using this idea a lot longer than our seventh grade textbooks have been uh, written. Um, so Aristotle says, the greatest thing by far is to have a command of a metaphor. This alone cannot be imparted by another. It is a mark of genius. Metaphor as genius. Robert Frost says, if you're going to remember only one thing I've said, remember that an idea is a feat of comparison and the height of it is a good metaphor. If you have never made a good metaphor, 
you do not know about which you speak. Dennis Potter writes, the strangest thing that human speech and human writing can do is create a metaphor. Not just a simile, him attacking that seventh grade definition. My love is like a red, red rose. But in a sense, it is a rose. That's an amazing leap, is it not? Or the best definition I found was a guy I don't even know, Jose Ortega y Gasset. The metaphor is perhaps one of man's most fruitful potentialities. Its efficacy verges on magic. And it seems a tool for creation, which God forgot inside of humans. Meaning, when you can make a metaphor, it's such a creative act. God forgot to take that out of us when he created us. And it's so godlike in terms of creating metaphors. I love this image. It's a metaphor in and of itself, which is a great way to define a metaphor, if you ask me. Um, but all these fruitful potentialities. Uh, my 20th century fiction teacher said, the next person to make a million bucks is not the person who comes up with the new idea, but the one who comes up with the new metaphor for an old idea. He said, listen, man, things like id and ego and superego were long around, long, around long before Ford ever came up with a good image of it with big icebergs under things and everything like that. He says, it's the person who can come up with the metaphor. That's the genius. And that's the one who's going to write the book and get paid. Metaphors. This is precisely what Jesus or what, uh, what God through David's pen is giving us this morning. He should give us three metaphors. And, and here's the problem with the metaphor. If you talk about it too much, it gets just as boring as seventh grade English class. You start dissecting it and, and putting in its all some of its parts and you just, it's, 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 it's not experience, it's dissected. And basically a frog isn't a frog when you're dissecting it, it's something else. A frog is a frog when you look at it and it makes you smile and it jumps around and you get scared of it, right? When you experience the frog, it's not when you take it all of its parts, but I'm sorry, I'm, preaching this morning, I have to do some dissecting of these metaphors that come before us. But don't forget, as we work through these metaphors, that it's the, not the dissection or the breaking it down of the metaphors that actually give it, gives its life. It can add to it, but you always have to take the step back up and experience it, interact with it, and see the mystery and magic and the genius of it. Metaphors. There are three of them, and they are, of course, because uh, David and Yahweh through David is the uh, the great English teacher from on high, uh, English literature teacher. It wasn't in English; uh, it was in Hebrew. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, but the great literature teacher from on high, and so explores three different, even not just three metaphors, but three different types of metaphor. And the first metaphor you have is what we call an extended metaphor. You may have remembered this from seventh grade, but extended metaphor is a metaphor that has lots of different parts to it that kind of keeps connecting and keeps connecting and keeps connecting. What's the first lines of the poem? The Lord is my shepherd. Bing, bing, bing. It doesn't just stop there. It keeps going, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Again, the extension of the metaphor for sheep to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, places sheep can get something to drink. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Maybe a better translation, right paths. You know, like go the right way. Like basically shepherds do to sheep, right? Still continuing, continuing in this. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, shepherd's rods and shepherd's staff, comfort me. 
And what you see here in these four uh, verses and these 11 lines is this kind of development of this, uh, these ideas that happen and are connecting to you in this metaphor uh, as a shepherd, God as our shepherd. The first thing you see is kind of provision. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in those green pastures and those still waters and restoring their souls, right? It's provision of body and soul. That's the first thing you get from this image of shepherd that comes for it, comes to us. <clears throat> and I want you to be 100% clear that I shall not want does not mean you get everything you want and therefore don't want it anymore. That is not what it means. What it means is maybe best translated, uh, I shall not be in want. I shall not be in want. It means, it means that you will ultimately be provided for. It means, it does, it may mean that your wanter gets changed, so the thing you once wanted, you don't want anymore because you've been interacting with the shepherd and he actually changes your wanter. But it means you shall not want or you shall not be in want or in deep and profound need. This has actually been true in our midst at Christ Central. And I, I, we're going to try to start telling some more stories about what happens in our midst. And this is a big picture uh, evidence of this. But many of you, many of you, several of you have given me wads of cash before to go give to somebody else. And you didn't want it to go directly because you wanted to be known and given it anonymously. We as a community do not want because things like that happen. There are bills that have been paid here and in our midst. Lights have been turned on. Groceries bought. 70% off scholarships to schools. We can say, honestly that we're people who are not in want because of His care for us and through each other. Listen, y'all, if I've, my math is correct, I was an English teacher, so somebody else can check me on this later, but I think we've given away, just in terms of mercy and justice ministries this, uh, these last six months, $24,000, which is $4,000 a month that we give to our people, through our people, us as a people give to our people. Y'all, Christ Central, we are not in want because the Lord has provided for us. I know it's $12,000 more than we thought we'd spend and we're 12000 in the red. Who cares? We're not in want either. Listen, Christ Central by the numbers shouldn't exist. And I can get some amens from the finance team. I know I can. And that's pretty good when you get an amen from a finance team. We shouldn't exist. We burned $20,000 a month when we started. That's insane. You shouldn't do that. We shall not want. He has provided for us and has done. But He doesn't just provide. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He guides us, you see. He leads us in paths of righteousness. Forced rest. Isn't that what that says? Forced rest. He makes us lie down. I didn't ask you if I could do this first, but sorry, brother. Uh, 
Pastor Howard is, was having trouble resting at the time, and he kept his phone kind of too near him during his month off. And he ran into a friend of ours, mutual friend, who knows what it means to be, have difficulty resting, and they're just minding their own business talking, and Pastor Howard answers his phone, and the friend goes, hey, um, what, what's that? Why you got your phone on? What, what, what's that all about? And he goes, well, I mean, I need it for other things. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I got a phone for you. You turn that off. Give the battery to Kelly, and uh, you come, you follow me home right now, and I will give you a phone that you can use, and you can just give it out so that it's all personal, so you know, it's still safe and all that other stuff, but, but you can't get any emails or any work stuff on it whatsoever. And Howard's like, thanks. <laughs> and what do you do? The man's provided rest for you. You know what I mean? And Kelly's like, woo, give me that. Let me see that. You know, I'll take it and provide rest for both of them. How brilliant is that? He makes us lie down in green pastures. He forces our sabbaticaling. And he gives us right paths to walk down. And you know this. You know this how often you have been kept knowing you're trying to go down a wrong path. And the Lord's shutting and slamming doors for you whatsoever. And you know when he's stayed his hand and let you walk down wrong paths, the lack of safety that, that, that visits you there. You know this. You've experienced this. But it's also protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Comfort me. Death valleys. This is not Clemson's home field. One, because it's not a very fearful place. Just let that sit for a little bit. Just making sure uh, Doug's not on sound because I'll get cut off quickly since he's a Clemson guy. Uh, It's actually (laughs) strong. That was strong. That was absolutely strong. That's good. (laughs) That was excellent. so what it actually is, is these shadows of death, these, uh, these valleys of the shadow of death. They're actually these huge crevices that, li- that exist in mountain ranges and things like that. And they're so deep and so profound and so steep that there's paths through them. But when you're walking through them, even in you know, near midday, sometimes the shadows are so deep and so hard you can't see through them. And so you're trying to get these sheep through and around these crevices. And it's like a val- valley of the shadow of death. Um, but interestingly enough, that in itself within the metaphor is a metaphor, right? Because it's an extended metaphor. Therefore, it hits the rays of the metaphor uh, shine out to a whole bunch of different places. And so what it's saying is, as you might imagine, is that this Lord of ours keeps us amid ambulances and gravesides and funerals and lost mentors and lost mothers and fathers. That what Yahweh is claiming here is that He is the shepherd of the sheep amidst death itself. And I don't know about you, but if you're me, you want to live in a religion that can handle funerals. You don't want to live in a religion that's just uh, brings uh, an idea of prosperity but cannot walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And Yahweh's promise to you is this precisely where I will prove true and faithful and your shepherd. Death's valley and staffs and rods. In fact, he's so committed to protecting us through death's valleys or valleys of death that um, he says that uh, this rod and staff comfort us. Now, staff sometimes, uh, some, you see a shepherd staff and most of the times you see a picture of a shepherding, uh, a staff shepherd and he's kind of leaning on it because, you know, shepherds are lazy or something like that. That's precisely not the right image of it. Uh, shepherds take their long staff and what they do is they keep 
their sheep in line, right? They pop them here and pop them there and just kind of move them and they respond to their voice. And, you know, it's an active working tool. This is not a passive instrument for leaning, you know. Uh, and he has a rod. And what's the rod for? The rod's for two things. One, for wolves or anything else that's going to come in. They just go whack and they just bop them right on the head and wallop them. And they protect them. You see how it would be a comfort for you to have a rod and a staff? Well, also, it's also known, and if you ask any shepherd, not that I know a ton of them, but I read a little bit about it this week, uh, a shepherd um, has a rod for the sheep too, because sometimes the staff doesn't work. And they're just moving them in here and there. And sometimes you got to take the rod and clock them right on the head, just like you would, almost like an enemy, except for you're guiding them towards paths of rightness and through the valley of the shadow of death. Rod and staff, they're both important. They're both uh, for us and that image is created for us but one last thing of this idea of shepherd you have this provision this guidance this protection that exists in us that exists for us because God is our shepherd I also want you to see that there's an intimacy too there's an, there's an intimacy that's both structurally in there and it goes from the first word the Lord is my shepherd the Lord there again those capital L-O-R-D's those are words that that means Yahweh. It's not generic Lord. It's the named Lord, the, the name of your God, the one he gave himself to his people to be called by. It's a connective. It's familial. It's relational. The Lord, you get a hint of it there. But then you also see if you're reading through, you change voices or persons, excuse me, from three to four. Again, English lesson, person, first person, second person, third person. It starts in third person, the Lord. And then it goes but you are with me. You comfort me. Your rod, your staff comfort me. You see that kind of personal, connected side to it? So even in the midst of us being uh, sheep who may need rod and staff, we are loved on and cared for with care and love of intimate relational friendship. Shepherds love their sheep. Shepherds connect with their sheep shepherds uh the sheep know the voice of their shepherds and can they can move vast amounts of them by just their words you are with me you connect with me you're for me northup fry says that the metaphor of the king as a shepherd of his people goes back to ancient egypt perhaps the use of the particular convention is due to the fact that being stupid Affectionate, gregarious, and easily stampeded, the societies formed by sheep are most like human ones. We need this rod and staff. And what I want this image of shepherd to do is let it blow itself back up now. Pull away, we dissected it, now we're going to bring it back together. And think of God as our shepherd. And what it should do is give us incredible freedom to understand God's protection and guidance and kind of live it out. You can uh, run around as much as you want. Don't worry. There is a rod and staff that will keep you in. You can go and live boldly in your life. Don't worry. There's a rod and staff that will guide and provide for you. You should, you should, you should go and play. And um, you know that you have a, a, a predator clonking uh, shepherd that oversees you. You can be sheep-like and enjoy life. And pursue things you desire because you have one who sees intimately and oversees you. But there's another part of it too. 
that we need to have a confidence that when the rod or staff does come, when the guidance does come, that we lean into it. Go be free. Uh, uh, go do what you want to do and enjoy it. But then when community or friend or pastor or elder or, or scripture comes to you and says, not dunk, 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 listen, stop. Enjoy your time and then listen and stop and be shaped and changed by it. By Him who does this for you carefully. And I'll give you some examples of some. Two really hard ones. Your daytimer can be a rod or a staff to you if you look at it in relationship to what might be godly priorities. You know what the other one is? Your checkbook. Right? I don't, I, you know, the, it, can, it can help you pop you on the head a little bit. Go, oh, wow, I spent that on that? I really, really? That's what my values are? That's what I care about? Or I spend this time in this? Or more harshly, sometimes it's the DWIs and the DUIs or the, uh, the places where you could have or should have had a DWI or a DUI. Those places where a friend has to put his arm or her arm around you and go, hey, you've gone too far. Those are rods. Those are staffs that help us lean into that intimate discipline from our Father. Y'all getting caught is a beautifully encouraging thing if it comes from one who's our shepherd, who guides and protects and who intimately disciplines us. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. God as our shepherd. Next metaphor. Just one verse, four lines. Different kind of metaphor, back to English class. This is an implied metaphor, not a direct metaphor. It's not the Lord is my shepherd. What it does is describe something, and you go, oh, I get it. I'll give you an example. Shut your trap. Your trap doesn't exist, right? It's not about a trap. What is it about? Your mouth, right? Shut your mouth like a trap. But you don't actually say mouth. You just kind of get that that's what they're talking about when you say it, right? Shut your trap. Your mouth as trap. Another example. Don't ruffle her feathers. Is she a bird? Well, in the image, yes. It's a bird, you get it. But you're not actually saying she is a bird or your mouth is a trap that ought to be shut. It doesn't really work as well, actually. So this is an implied metaphor in verse 5. Look here. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. What's the image? What's the metaphor? That's not rhetorical. Host, right? Some type of welcoming person, person at table, you know, someone who's inviting you in. You got that? We're going back to seventh grade English. We need to, we're going to have to have a revision of this. What it is, is implying with this image of, of host, this person who invites you over, a welcoming uh, reality. Look at this. I, you prepare a table for me. You prepare a table for me. Listen, I don't want to brag on my wife too much, but if you come spend the night at my house for, uh, and you're not under seven, um, uh, sorry, Jack, you didn't, this didn't happen for you. But, uh, um, but if you're not under seven and you come stay at my house, the likelihood is that at some point, uh, Amanda, before you get there, will have some water for you and a glass for you, and it'll be right by your bedside. That's what will happen. You know why? 
Because she's prepared a place for you. She's prepared a drink for you. Now, what, how uncomfortable it is to get up in the middle of the night thirsty at somebody else's house. Especially if you're in your skibbies or something like that, you know? <laughs> got to go find some shorts. You got to go on. And then you're still kind of rushing because your hair's all, you know? It's just a simple glass of water. But someone's thought about you and prepared a place for you. But what God's talking about here isn't a host, just, you know, water. This is talking about a banquet that has been prepared for you. It's not just welcome, but welcomed into bounty. Look what it says. It says you anoint your head with oil, a place of, of almost royalty and honor that's given to someone to be anointed as they come into your presence, into your home, into your place, and a cup overflowing. This is not a stingy host, which just proves all the more that Jesus must be Italian. Jesus must have been Italian. If you're in Italy and you say you want some more food, un po', you will get five times the amount of food that you had just gotten. If you say just a little bit more, un po' de più, you will get twice as much as you got before. If you don't want any more food, say basta, no, no. If you don't want to, if you, if you want just a little bit more food, say basta, which means stop, and you'll just get a nice sized portion of food afterward. If you say too much, you know, troppo, that means you'll just get a little bit, maybe what you wanted originally if you wanted a little bit more food. That's the way it works. Have you ever been to a place where they serve wine properly? Even Amanda, we were uh, out with the Howells on the, the Last Supper of the house and um and we went to this nice italian restaurant and they gave us 55 gallon drum glasses right and they filled it up that much you know it's a very chic thing to do i guess to have these huge glasses right and then just fill it up that looks like you know you don't that's not the way it works in italy you got these little glasses and they fill it to the rim with the house wine you know what i mean your cup overflows and go to a German brew house or something like that. Man, that stuff's just pouring all over the place. There's barely any in there. It was just slopping all around. The Lord is not a stingy host. He brings fine wines and he lets it overflow before us. That's what they're talking about here. Not just welcomed, but a bount- welcome into a bounty. Look at Isaiah 25. Let me read this to you. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast in rich food, a feast well, of, of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, an aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up, again, watch you use the image, swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. See that image? He's pulling it off so that we can, he's swallowing up this veil so that we can come together again. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 25. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? This feast before us. I'm going to give you another image. Admit of those of you who get really panicky and nervous about your days. Another image for those of you who need to or feel like they need to control things. For those of you who struggle with rest, the Lord is your host. And you can ask any session member or family member of a session member what it's like to be the host, to be the, uh, what's the opposite of a host? The guest. When Kelly Brown's the host at one of her, uh, her, her big spreads. 
We had vats of soup. Vats of soup. We, we were 12 of us. We, we were killing that soup. And we didn't even get close to finishing it. There was so much for us. And when you walk in, Kelly, first of all, won't let you do anything. It's just a little frustrating. But she's like, closes off the kitchen and says, okay, you guys go out. Get, here's a drink or a glass of wine or something like that. Some water, whatever it is. Go enjoy yourselves. Talk. You're welcomed here. Relax and rest. And if you want to take control, you can't. I'm in control here. I'm the host. Let your nerves die down. Don't worry about what you're going to eat because you're going to eat good. And you can ask any session member, again, any elder or elder's wife or anything like that, and they will attest to this. That's the image that the Lord has given for us here. For those of you who are panicky, worrying about control, you don't need to control, you have a host. For those of you who are nervous, relax, come and eat. For those of you who get stressed out about those things and can't find rest, come and dine with the Lord, it says. Okay, last metaphor. The last metaphor is in the last verse there. And this is a metaphor, it's a little bit more complicated because it's a metaphor of illusion. Illusion. You won't get it at first sight. It's not as clear as shepherd. It's not even as clear as host. In fact, it's an elusive or an illusion illusion metaphor. Um, One like this. You may or may not know this, but when um, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech, he started early on by saying, five score years ago. You know what he was doing there? He was making an allusion to another score uh, uh, speech, four score and seven years ago. Seven? I think it's four score and seven years ago, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address speech. And he was going, Bing, I want your mind to think of that and what was going on there. And I want you to bring some of the weight of what that is into this that's going on now. You see the sophistication of that metaphor? It's pretty sweet, isn't it? But it's usually a known event or a known circumstance where you can say something like that. If I said the, 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 um, uh, the, dan- the lights uh, danced across the stage, that would be one thing. If I said the light moonwalked across the stage, you would hear, hear something differently, wouldn't you? Say, okay, we just got an illusion that's really important to us right now, right? It's really important to us. It's some event. There's 9-11 illusions like this all the time. It happens. But sometimes you get too far away from it. Like in uh, 25-11, we may not get the 9-11 illusions anymore. We might not get the four-score illusions anymore. We may not even get the moonwalk illusions one day, which will be sad. Um, but, uh, But this is what's happened here. You have an illusion in two places that form one idea. And it's in the verb, which is so weakly translated... Follow. This word followed is only translated one other place and followed, and it's weak there too. This is a word that means means bloodlust vengeance. When Pharaoh is going after the Israelites, he follows, same word, them into the Red Sea, into his own death and destruction, right? It is a bloodlust in... Um, uh, when there's when you committed manslaughter by an accidental death in the in the Old Testament, you could um, you could get after the person who was who was who was doing it. You could, you're, as a family member or a brother or a sister, could go after that person. That pursuit of that person is the same word for follow. And what is the uh, what is following you here? Not bloodlust and vengeance, but what goodness 
and mercy following you all the days of your life. Not following, pursuing you and going after you. You add that to this place where you run to, which is the house of the Lord, you'll be forever. Well, you'll be forever. And the image that comes to your head is what's called a city of refuge. In the Old Testament, there was these things called cities of refuge. There were six of them. And if you did something accidentally and killed somebody, the brothers and sisters, whoever, the family had the right to come after you. But if you made it to the temple of a city of refuge, you had amnesty. You had asylum. You could not be harmed. It was a place of refuge. It was a safe house. It was a safe house for you to live in. And those two words, those two images of coming into the temple and being pursued by something, this time grace and mercy, would automatically make you think of these places you could go to be safe. So you have shepherd and you have host and you have safe house or city of refuge. And now I want you to really pull way back up because this city of refuge, this safe house thing, um, gives you, it ma- makes you want to explode the metaphors even more. This is one of the great uh, poems in all of literature. This is one of the great poems uh, in all of scripture. This is the reason why this is a beloved deal, is because these images are popping out, and the genius of metaphors, as we, as we said, makes you, uh, uh, gives you all those potentialities and brings magic to the situation, uh, to ma- magic to your imagination. I want to pull way back out, because I want you to realize... That every single noun and verb in this passage is pointing directly or indirectly to Jesus. Let me see if I can show this for you. Even in the beginning, you can pull out your paper right there and I'll let you look at them. And I'm going to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase and see, let you see how it points to Jesus. A Psalm of David. Remember, that's part of the scriptures we said, right? I am the root and offspring of David. And the bright and morning star, Jesus says, the Lord is my shepherd. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I shall not want. The Lord knows what you need before you even ask of it, Jesus says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. John 10 says, I am the gate about Jesus. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. He leads me beside still waters. Peace be still, he says to the raging waters. And everyone finds peace and safety. And even the winds and the waters obey him. He leads you beside still waters. He restores my my soul. Take my, my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He leads me in paths of righteousness. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. Or Second Corinthians says, he became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. For his name's sake, Jesus says about himself, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus says, or what is said about Jesus, every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain made hill made low. The crooked roads will become straight and the rough ways smooth. Luke 3. I will fear no evil. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. For you are with me. And I am with you always. To the edge, to the, even to the end of the ages. For your rod and your staff, 
Maybe the metaphor flips a little bit here. There's a staff that makes its way through Jesus' life. Not one he holds, but one that beats his brow. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head. And again and again, they comfort me. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our times of troubles. You prepare a table for me. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And the presence of my enemies. Think about what Jesus did. The hand of him who was going to betray him was with me at the table. You anoint my head with oil, not for Jesus. They anointed his dead body as it was broken for us. His cup overflows, or our cup overflows. The cup that overflows for us is provision. The cup that overflows for him was God's very wrath. The cup of wrath to give us the cup of welcome. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. By Jesus himself. Forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of the Lord stands forever. He will be in us forever, Second John. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever, First John. Jesus is our good shepherd. He's the recipient of the metaphor in all sorts of crazy and wild and wonderful ways. It's almost ridiculous how much it connects to Jesus' life. It's amazing. And most importantly, to his death and resurrection. Because you know what was true about the safe houses? The cities of refuge? Once you made it to asylum in the city of refuge, you had to stay there. Because if you left the city, then the brothers and sisters could kill you. Until the death of the high priest. When the priest died in the city, then you were free to leave. And they couldn't attack you anymore. When the high priest dies, we are free from our guilt. Sound like Jesus? The priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews says. Our great high priest who intercedes for us. When that priest dies, dies for our sin, we're welcome to be free because we know he's still going to guide us and he's going to love us and he's going to shepherd us. He's going to be our host because he's our haven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that these metaphors explode off the page. We thank you that they are joy to us. Lord, help us think through them dissected, but then quickly move them up and experience them as they ought be, not to be managed but to be experienced and enjoyed. But enlivened by you, that we would see that somehow, either directly or indirectly, all of Scripture, all of beauty and poetry, all metaphors point to you and your goodness, your love, 
your death and your resurrection and your bringing a people to yourself. We pray in your name. Amen.